Welcome back to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. My name is Taryn Sharma. I'm happy to be joined by my friend and my co-host, Mike Lawson. How's it going, Mike? Taryn, good, man. We took a little bit of a break here. We both had some busy, busy lives going on here, but NIL doesn't stop, so we need to we need to have some constant updates here. That's right. And you uh, double dipped this week, did the show with Dan and Conlon on Monday. We're always trying to put out uh, content. And so if there are things that you want to hear us discuss, drop us a line on, on Twitter. That's the, probably the best place to, to find us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was mentioned in the uh, the intro there. Uh, we're using uh, Spotify for podcasters. It's not necessarily like a, a sponsor of ours, but um, just something that we enjoy using and, and is is really helpful for producing our content, right? Yeah, absolutely. It makes it super easy. It's very user-friendly to just kind of upload all platforms. It's a Spotify, you know, platform, but you, you know, we post wherever you listen to your podcast. So it's it just makes it helpful and, and they've been great. So we also, as always, are brought to you by Themis, best bar review company in the galaxy uh, with the code CDThemis500. Now uh, through June, you can get uh, $500 off of their bar prep courses. We both used it, as we've mentioned, both passed, uh, big believer in the, in the Themis system. And that's why we're really proud to be sponsored by them. Absolutely. And and good luck to those listening here, the, those three L's who are currently maybe starting their bar prep, hopefully using Themis. The grind starts now, but you know what? This is probably the last summer ever that the only thing you need to do is one thing. Study for the bar, take the bar. It's the only thing you need to do this summer. So, But we hope that you use our, our good friends Themis, and we guarantee that uh, they'll be able to help you pass that bar. Yeah. Again, that code is CDThemis500. So, Mike, a little rundown of what we got ahead of us today. Going to be kind of a jam-packed show here. We've got a couple of state NIL bills. Uh, New York passed one. Uh, Texas has proposed another one. And then we've got a little bit of movement uh, at the federal level. Not sure uh, if that's likely to pass or not, but we'll talk about the federal NIL bill. And then wrap it up with uh, some discussion on what the NLRB just charged. So let's start here. Mike, you are pretty in the weeds on on this. New York introduced a bill last week that or a couple of weeks ago now, and that's going to make it easier for schools to engage in NIL. Can you tell us a little bit about the different ways in, in which they could do that? This is a, a proposed amendment to the current name, image, and likeness bill that, that's active in New York. And what this is, and and it's following the footsteps of, of some other states. Uh, we talked about this a while ago. Oklahoma's actually got vetoed for this, but um, other other states that currently have that is Missouri, Arkansas, and Colorado. We're going to talk about Texas too. But the big thing here is New York is preventing the NCAA and conferences from imposing any sort of punishment on its schools and its athletes within its schools in New York State as it relates to name, image, and likeness. And, and that means, you know, general name, image, and likeness policies, as well as collectives and potential, uh, you know, regulations that might come out against collectives. Because what states are doing now is they realize because there is no regulations, they're fearful of what regulations might come out. And again, we're going to talk a little bit later about federal regulation, but 
if there's federal regulation that imposes this very strict guideline that would prohibit their state and their state schools and their state at, you know student athletes then they want to protect them. So so we're seeing a trend in states doing that. New York being the first one out of the Northeast to kind of go through uh, this process. But it's it's definitely a foot forward for states to protect their own schools. And, and what's interesting too is New York within this bill is also amending the definition of student athlete. So they are adding that a student athlete would also be an individual who's completed at least their sophomore year of high school or an internationally equivalent to that, which would be a student athlete who would be eligible to participate in college athletics. So basically what they're doing with that as well is they're protecting the high school name, image, and likeness, right? So if there's ever some sort of regulation that might come out within a conference or the NCAA where they would impose some sort of punishment for a student athlete who earned name, image, and likeness while they were in high school, then this by definition under this new amendment to this bill would also protect high school name, image, and likeness and student athletes as well. I know that that's something that a lot of different states are pushing for, particularly the high school protections. This law, which uh, really changes kind of the the parameters within which colleges are, are able to operate. So allowing them to facilitate these deals directly to really kind of act as an agent. Do you think that that's something that we're going to see more of? Yeah, I mean, we we talked about the issues of uh, not not necessarily issues but the hesitation on some schools about becoming involved. And we talked about that as it relates actually to Syracuse with their big booster where they felt that there was almost like they needed to keep them at an arm's length because they didn't want to be in a situation where they're facilitating or encouraging a certain collective or booster to you know give name image likeness uh, deals to their student athletes because of this i mean everybody was fearful after what happened to, to Miami even though there was not a name image likeness punishment you know there there became this fear that these schools were going to be accused of kind of facilitating these deals so again that's another way for the states to protect their and that's got to be coming from these schools to the representatives. They had to have gone, you know, to the New York representatives that are proposing this amendment because they're like, we need protection here because we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Because they want their athletes to get name, image, and likeness deals and they want to facilitate that. But at the same time, it's difficult for them to potentially educate their student athletes or educate local businesses on how they were how they would conduct a name, image, and likeness deal without violating some sort of rule that may or may not exist in the future just because, you know, they are afraid of themselves, the schools themselves, of being punished in the future. Yeah, and you uh, you mentioned hearing directly from the schools, and so we can shift gears a little bit, talk about Texas and their state NIL law, which was heavily crafted by Texas and Texas A&M, in addition to other state school officials. And we previously discussed that Texas A&M was, through their collective, the 12th Man Plus, was giving out deals to people that were contributing to their fund, giving them better tickets, more opportunities for access. And that that was something that the NCAA, very specifically when Charlie Baker came in, uh, issued more guidance kind of targeting, even though they didn't mention Texas A&M by name. So do you think that 
now this kind of opens the door for more institutions to kind of act in this way where they directly tie gifting to the collective with uh, being able to access school sanctioned opportunities like tickets. It's definitely interesting. Also, the piece of of schools, you know, directly lobbying with their representatives on on getting preferable, you know, state bills. That that side of it was an was a reason, a main reason why a lot of people within the NCAA are pushing for a federal bill too, because they don't want this differentiation between states. Because something like this in Texas could encourage, you know, bigger bigger deals with collectives. Collectives could grow much larger through Texas A&M with this, especially with the schools being involved in this and, and potentially becoming more of an incentive for a student athlete to potentially go to Texas instead, right? That was the fear we had in the beginning when there was a flood to the market of, you know, first to pass this bill to get as many athletes in their, in their uh, schools as possible because you wanted the potential for a student to make money and that would bring the athletes in. So I think this could potentially be something that we see similar. And then again, it, it's, a, it's a race for all the other states to amend their bills and do the same thing to encourage the facilitation and potentially large growth of collectives that they could do this to. Yeah, absolutely. And so this legislation, it, it again, is allowing for deal facilitation. And I, I, I think that this common trend that you're seeing on the state level is uh, is something that we're going to see more states do when you when you get the Texases of the world including you know those SEC schools down there both Texas and Texas A&M in the next couple of years that is really going to shift the the demographics I think across the country because uh, you see what Texas is able to do well Ohio and Ohio state's not going to be uh, wanting to be left behind there given that they're competition is, uh, for a national championship is going to have to run through AM, Texas, whoever wins the SEC. Mm-hmm. So given that that is a heavily saturated market, I'm really interested to see how they're able to set themselves apart in, in terms of like, especially like a place where there are multiple collectives. How can each collective offer something that, that, sets it apart because right. if one say the 12th man plus gets the rights to offer up ticket benefits and then so if there's a, another collective how are they going to compete so I, I think that's another interesting thing in terms of needing to have that partnership between the university and the collective and uh and, and maybe consolidating what is like a very large market right now yeah that's a good point that's a good point and most of the I would say experts in the field, people who are analyzing these types of bills are calling this a tipping point, right? If if this bill passes in Texas, but, but I mean, the New York bill, we, we just talked about the New York bill and the Texas bill have some similarities. I'm just reading a quote from the, the legislation from the Texas bill, an athletic association, an athletic conference or any other group organization with authority over an intercollegiate athletic program at an institution to which this section applies may not enforce a contract term, a rule, a regulation, a standard, or any other requirement that prohibits the institution from participating in intercollegiate athletics or otherwise penalizes the institution or the institution's intercollegiate athletic program for performing, participating in, or allowing an activity required or authorized by this section. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. basically saying that 
Texas is saying that the NCAA can't punish them for operating under this bill, especially as it's related to you know, booster groups funding NIL or collectives or whatnot. New York had a similar, you know, the, almost verbatim in, in their legislation in there for their amendment as well, that, that, you know, the NCAA and the athletic associations, you know, conferences, whatever, can't, can't prohibit uh, New York state from, from following the guidelines of this, the state statute. Yeah, absolutely. So this one expected to pass in Texas uh, and we're seeing it in other states and something we'll continue to track. Uh, it seems like this kind of runs contrary to one of the federal bills that has been proposed by August Pfluger. He's a congressman from the 11th district in Texas, and this was proposed in the House. And Pfluger's ideas are, are more aligned with, I think, Charlie Baker and the NCAA in terms of uh, giving them that authority, that power to oversee from what they would argue is a consumer protection standpoint. And then also to prevent employee status. And so that'll get into what we're talking about later on with the uh, NLRB. What a flip. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking about Texas where they are so gung-ho about protecting their own schools and 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 even encouraging facilitation with NI collectives and booster groups. Yeah. And, whatnot. and then we have a, a Texas representative in August Fluger who comes in and, and is completely on the flip side with a federal bill that would preempt any sort of Texas bill here that would allow that would do the exact opposite that that Texas bill is is trying to achieve. By you know restricting schools from facilitating, restricting collectives, putting student athletes to to remain as student athletes, and, and preventing them from becoming employees. So it's all the protections that the NCAA wants, and it's just it's just an interesting flip to what Texas is you know proposing to pass you know soon. Well, also, I, I mean, compare this to, I mean, the federal bill is trying to preempt these states from acting, but the states are acting so much quicker yeah. than what the, uh, the the federal government is able to do. And even though this is being proposed, discussed, whatever, like the draft is being disseminated, it seems still unlikely that we're going to get a federal NIL bill before the 2024 elections, mm -hmm. right? And I, I don't think that that's something that people are going to be spending their political capital on ahead of, you know, every election being the most important election of our lifetimes. I don't think that this is going to be like a, a big issue, a, a winning issue for, for either side. So I don't anticipate that we're going to see a ton of movement on this, but this is like the only focus for the NCAA. It doesn't seem like they have another plan and they continue to fall behind. I, I, I'm just not sure that I understand what their strategy is. Yeah, I, I don't think they have one. And, you know, friend of the podcast, Mitt Winter, I, I, he also said that this is just unlikely to pass before the 2024 election cycle. And yeah. the, the the interesting thing about it is, and I've seen this multiple, multiple sources, um, obviously on three has been covering all of this, like so much that they've been so great. But, you know, it, it appears as if like the NCAA is waiting for something to blow up, something to go wrong, some scandal to occur that it almost forces Congress to act because that's just that's that's the fastest way that federal a federal bill will be implemented is if something 
completely blows up in the face of the NIL world that something needs to be done because as fast as some states are working, some states aren't working quite as fast. So there's there's going to be discrepancies there, but you've got states now that allow the collectives to move forward. You've got the issues that are going to present themselves as it relates to employee stats. We're going to talk to, we're going to talk about NLRB stuff too, but you've got every front kind of happening against the NCAA here where there's potential for the incentivization through collectives and, you know, getting, you know, getting athletes through the transfer portal and all this stuff. Like there's so many, there's so many layers to the NCAA with a lot of issues on multiple fronts here that it's almost like the NCAA is taking a hands-off approach, expecting it to blow up, which would then force the hand of, of the federal government. Well, I wonder if that coincides, you've been seeing more stories in the last couple of months about student athletes, not, getting what they agreed to in terms of payments from collectives. I've heard this about Michigan. I've heard this about Rutgers now. I'm wondering if those stories are not to the NCAA's advantage. Maybe they're interested in in getting those types of stories out there, especially if if the angle that they're going to continue to hammer is the consumer protection one. Right, right. You know, it, like they always kind of treated it like the NCAA is so benevolent. We're here to to help the student athlete, but really what it is, is like total exploitation. And it's the bottom dollar, whatever, whatever the the, the profit margin is going to be for the NCAA. Absolutely. And, and the fact that, you know, the NCAA has been in this position for so long, basically was allowed to turn into this behemoth because the the Supreme court saved it from itself in 1984 and board of regents. And and the fact that they still kind of don't get it. I guess it shouldn't be surprising because this is what it's always been, but but it, it is still befuddling to say the least. We'll wrap here. Something that we have been following is National Labor Relations Board. We've tracked obviously the initial Kane Coulter and and Peter Orr and trying to unionize uh, probably a decade ago, and and then we saw last year that Acting General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo saying that student athletes are employees under her view and and that the NCAA should stop referring to them as student athletes. And we've been tracking the complaints from the NCPA that allege that student athletes are employees, uh, kind of the same sort of thinking that, that Abruzzo had in her memo in 2021. And now we're getting some real movement. Uh, we're going to have a court hearing at the towards the end of this year the National Labor Relations Board actually considering this idea, this complaint of whether college athletes are employees. So this, again, very specific to USC. It discusses the uh, the media policies in particular that that say to that these they tell the student athletes to smile to be, be positive when speaking to the media and not posting anything to embarrass USC, the team, your family. And they had to make their, you put their viewing settings on private. So only the friends can see the postings. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. I saw saw that in the complaint. Kind of the, the, the background to all of this is that the players are, are kind of providing their, NIL in that they are submitting to interviews and and doing things that are getting the program out there. This is very important to the Pac-12 as a conference. 
in that it, they're currently trying to reach new television deals. So where do you think that this is going? Do you think that there's any chance that we get any sort of settlement before the fact? Or do you think that this is really like, you know, you said tipping point earlier, could this be that ultimate tipping point where we get some sort of clarification from the NLRB as to employee status? I said, I got to go back and, and and find the quote. I think it was right after name, image, and likeness was proposed, maybe passed. So like right before, and probably was like spring of 2021, that in a five to 10 year life like span, the NCAA would cease to exist as a governing body. If this goes forward, and I think this kind of this goes. This, I mean, it's happening with the House versus NCAA case. More notably, the Johnson versus NCAA case about employee status. It will truly be the beginning of the end for the NCAA as a governing body because if they become employees, then there's really no. I don't see a necessary, you know, entity that NCAA is as a governing body because if that's the case then each conference been, can become a union. Every school under that conference, student athletes can have their own union and negotiate with the conference and the conference can be the governing body individually. And then I, I guess the only, then the shell of the NCAA would be to schedule championships. I don't know. Maybe that. Then maybe that's it. It's just going to be a completely different look than what we know the NCAA to be. Now, I still haven't made up my mind on whether or not this is like a domino effect, too, because there's going to be a lot of other things that happen with student athletes becoming employees. A lot of people are are, are saying that Title IX is going to get all screwed up. Title IX is there to protect the student athletes. I don't think it's going to impact the sports. Like some some people are saying that like Title IX is going to shut down a lot of like Olympic sports or smaller sports like softball or something like that. It's going to shift to a club sport and it's going to impact Title IX. Then there's the issue of equal pay as it relates to the negotiating power of of each of these student athletes and and the piece of the pie that that all the athletes are you know entitled to, especially because you know the, some of the larger schools that or larger sports that bring in more money. Blah, 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 blah. Of course, they're going to talk about all the issues that might happen instead of the issue that's directly in front of them. And that's a student athlete who I think should become an employee. Because if you have all of these negotiations now, especially all the state, all the states that potentially would have negotiating powers or facilitation of their their student athletes for collectives and, and like name, image, and likeness, right? Like they're they're basically creating them to be like independent contractors if that's the if that's the case or something like that there's a lot of there's a lot of things that could happen here but i think what it boils down to is it's going to happen it's inevitable they're hitting them on and on so many fronts as it relates to employee status that i think i, I think i read it i don't know who was the one who said it maybe it was a bruzo that schools should be planning right now they should already be planning for their student athletes to be considered employees because it's it's already going to be there where we are right now is like 2020 to early 2021 of name image and likeness for employee status of student athletes where we're probably a calendar year away maybe a little bit more than a calendar year away from this actually happening because it's it's very full steam ahead and i think schools need to act fast if this was inside the NBA, we would put that on a little post-it note and put it yeah. next to you. 
I'll put it on my uh, wall. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that you're probably right here. Listen, when I was in college, I, I worked at the dean of students' office briefly, just like doing administrative tasks, and they controlled my hours. They told me when to be there. They told me how I had to do the job, and I don't see a ton of difference between that opportunity that I had and the opportunity to play intercollegiate athletics, except that there was no billion dollar television deal to watch me file paperwork. <laughs> and there is, I, I mean, these guys are, and, and girls are really creating a lot of value for institutions. And it, in my opinion, is fair for them to receive a cut of what they're creating. I'm just imagining and negotiating. I want to go sit across the table from some some Turner Broadcasting reps and just be like, okay, we got Taryn doing his filings. Yeah. It's TV ready. Let's make a deal. Watch how he gets it in at the last second. You can't <laughs> beat that. The other thing what's interesting too, we, we talked about this just a little bit before, it's how this suit kind of came to be, right? Because the NLRB had to kind of actually, quote unquote, like find merit right in, in this in this charge to allow these these student athletes to to become you know actual employees in their eyes but the other thing is is the NLRB is an entity that kind of goes you know governs over private companies right where so USC USC a private a private school here private entity and they're suing them for labor practices, you know, where they believe the student athletes are not be not being considered employees. They're 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 considering them students, even though that they are completely controlling every aspect of their life as if they were an employee, right? So that's that that's kind of the, the there's more to it, but a little bit like that's the crux of the, the 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 lawsuit here. But they're using a joint employer status of the Pac-12 and the NCAA for being the governing bodies that control USC for implementing these control mechanisms over their student athletes. So they're using a joint employer that that joint employer status to indirectly directly go after the Pac-12 and the NCAA, which would then force the hand of the NCAA to deem as as a whole. Not so this wouldn't just be the Pac-12 or the USC, but the NCAA as a whole to to recognize the fact that they control all of the labor aspects of student athletes under the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And therefore, student athletes must be deemed employees because of the control that they have over them. So it's an interesting way to, like I said, indirectly, directly go after the NCAA. And the response from the Pac-12 was, as you might imagine, they put out a statement Key couple lines here that I'll read. All student athletes throughout the Pac-12 are full members of their academic communities, not workers who are simply there to perform a service. The claims now being asserted in the NLRB case seek to disrupt all of that. Ignoring the many important educational benefits that come with the participation in college sports, the NLRB general counsel would have USC treat its football and ba basketball players as workers who must be paid a wage, not students who receive scholarships or who desire to participate in extracurricular sports on a voluntary basis. And again, I, I don't see how this is much different than somebody who's on some sort of work-study program mm -hmm. where they're receiving uh, educational benefit and money 
in exchange for doing a, a job on campus, except this one creates a lot more value than, you know, reshelving books at the library, as important as that is. But playing football on Saturdays for USC is just a, a little bit more high profile in terms of what it uh, creates for the university community. I would argue that a student athlete has their life way more control than somebody who might be shelving books at the, at the library as well. Right. They, yeah. they, they have, they work whatever nine to five or whatever, whatever, you know, time that you, if you have a work study, right. Student athlete, they're going from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., right? They've got way more control of what, what they have to be doing, where they have to be, you know, and, and every second of the day that's kind of planned out. So there's there's way more control in that sense. I, I found it interesting, too, what Charlie Baker uh, was quoted saying that he said, I don't think you'll find very many student athletes who want to be employees. I think student athletes want to be student athletes, and it's up to us to figure out how to make that work for them in a variety of environments and in circumstances that are different. The only problem with that is it's not like the fact that student athletes are now employees are going to be acting any different. There's no difference. It's because what the, the way that the NCAA is treating their student athletes, the way that conferences and schools are treating their athletes is equivalent to that of an employee and that it's just a status change. And that their rights go up. They can have a board, a union that negotiates their rights and somebody that can speak on their behalf. Student athletes' life essentially isn't going to change. There's going to be no different. If I walked up to a student athlete, I'd be like, do you care if you're an employee? I think Charlie's wrong in that sense. That There's no difference to what their life is going to be. Well, I, I mean, maybe it's true in a general sense. They don't necessarily like want to be employees, but they want to be compensated for their work. and so. If this is the means by which that can happen because the NCAA has refused to do this on their own. Well, then this is the way that it's going to happen. I, I, I think that the NCAA so clearly has gotten away with not compensating these people for their work for a long time. And meanwhile, the NCAA has grown into this behemoth and they're, they're still coasting on free labor, essentially. The yeah, NCAA, yeah. what do they have to do? Yeah, it's the schools that are giving out the scholarships. I'm not sure exactly what value they're really creating. And so in this case, I think that they are creating the type of scope of employment that we would talk about for, for torts. And, and I think that it applies here. Again, I, I mentioned it before, talking about issues that don't exist, but put, could potentially exist if, if, the, if the student athletes be deemed employees. I, you know, I wonder how this works, if it's going to be an all-in type of method where all of the student-athletes need to be a part of the union. Uh, they need to be union members. With that, I mean, there's, like I said, there's other issues, right? Union dues and all this stuff. But, or is there going to be some sort of opt-in, opt-out where you have, because I imagine too, this is going to impact like scholarships, like like student-athletes who are, who are scholarship athletes, right? Like, they're not going to they're not going to get a scholarship if they're if they're being paid or getting you know revenue share or something like that so that might impact scholarships right so if you have maybe you have an opt in opt out where you have scholarship student athletes who are not employees which in the in that sense then you might have to change how you control their life and then you have somebody who opts in and they are you know a part of a union and they are employees under the school and they get paid you know They've got a 401k, you name it, whatever. But if a student athlete doesn't want that for themselves, if there's some sort of opt-out option where then they can just remain 
a scholarship student athlete. I don't know. Again, this is an issue that has you know doesn't exist at this moment, but potentially could arise. Something to to keep an eye on for sure. So before we get out of here, it's uh, Memorial Day weekend coming up, long weekend. You have uh, anything fun planned, Mike? Yeah, you know, me and my girlfriend going to go to Lake George. And for anyone who's not familiar with New York, you know, Lake George is a is a very popular lake in the Adirondacks. Uh, Saratoga, people more know Saratoga Racetrack. That's just a little bit more north of Saratoga Racetrack. So what about you? I am going to do nothing. I'm going <laughs> to sit at home and watch baseball and, and relax. I, I feel like I haven't caught up on rest in a long time, uh, especially with the travel. So I'm psyched. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again to uh, to you, Mike, and everybody else on the uh, the Conduct Network. Uh, we'll be back hopefully next week with uh, with another show and and see if there are any updates. Maybe have a a guest. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Con Detrimental at Mike underscore Son of underscore Law and at TK Sharma Law. Appreciate you all listening. As always, that'll do it for another episode. Conduct Detrimental. 